All right, Heather, A through Z. I don't know why I thought it was Jason's week. Nope, he was A last week. Z. A through Z. Because last week he chose A. All right. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with S. S. Okay, I have something for S. Uh, so I don't know if any of you guys have friends or anybody like that who have talked about the movie Sound of Freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When they're- I've got a guy, it seems like every day he's saying, go watch the movie. It's the best movie of all year. You got to see it, blah, blah, blah. I mean, every day I have a, there's a guy um, posting, you got to go see the movie. Interesting enough, this is the same person who a few, I, I want to say, or maybe it was last episode that I was talking about that posted the thing about losing respect for Tom Holland. So, you know, like I've lost all respect for Tom Holland. Then he, then he, you know, he posts, you got to see this movie. And now it's making me wonder, like, what's in this movie? Oh, there's a reason why I brought it up, Justin. I'm not just bringing it up because I want people to go see a uh, conspiracy theory propaganda film for no reason. Oh, man. Of course. Of course. So this is about a group called uh, OUR. Uh, It's something Underground Railroad. It's an anti-child trafficking group. And it sounds like that'd be great. That'd be a good thing. You know, because, you know, child trafficking is bad. Uh, And it's about their founder, I don't know, some fuckhead, something Ballard or something like that. Um, Jim Caviezel plays him, and I'll get more into Jim Caviezel in a little bit. Uh, But, you know, uh, the movie is um, all propaganda and lies. So this organization loves to act like they go around and they go all CIA secret agent and bust up child uh, trafficking rings all over the world. In fact, the movie starts with uh, this little girl in Mexico, like running up to Jim Caviezel's character and like jumping into his arms because she's she's being rescued by him from child sex trafficking. And, and and that guy Ballard has gone on, on news stations and all this other stuff talking about that story. Talking about how he helped save Liliana and like saved her her older brother or older sister like a few years later. Because these I don't know, Mexican child traffickers just kidnapped her and, you know, wanted to traffic her and all this shit. Except him and his organization had nothing to do with her rescue whatsoever. Um, She actually escaped on her own and did not even meet anybody in that organization until after a few years after she escaped it. 
And then on top of that, when he's like, oh, I went and rescued her, like I said, it was older brother, older sister, or whatever. Um, nothing happened to them. They, they weren't in a trafficking ring or any of that stuff. It was also not just random Mexicans that came and, and kidnapped her for trafficking purposes. It was her landlord that took her across the border. Weirdly enough, with consent from her grandmother, because she lived with her grandmother. The whole ruse was that he was taking her down to Mexico to visit her mom that lived there. But no, he was doing it to kidnap her. Now, like, it was just one of those things. It was under a ruse, but it was something he was actually known to do. He is known to make friends with his tenant's children so he could, you know, be a fuckhead. So everything about the story, and this is the literally like beginning of the movie and one of his main claims to fame, all of it is a lie and fake. He talks about how he runs around the world doing this, saving people. Um, but his organization actually hurts efforts to end child trafficking because... He lies about what the causes are for it. To him, it's, it's devil worshipers. It's, oddly enough, Democrats. Um, it's foreign people. It's all those things. They're the ones that go and they kidnap your children to put them into sex trafficking. Statistically speaking... The number one reason or way that children end up in trafficking is a family member or a family friend. That is the number one way it happens. Strangers is not like the least common way. Like you just being kidnapped and sold into trafficking is not the most, like it's not the least common way, but it's nowhere near the top. I want to say it's like 17% or something like that. So this organization causes a lot of problems with the perception of what trafficking is. Which hurts people because when you're, when you're trying to take down rings or when you're trying to get information on rings and you're trying to find out that stuff, people aren't noticing what the the real reasons behind it can be. You know what I mean? They're not going to go, oh, it's not my friend Bob. We've I've known him for 20 years. It couldn't possibly be him. Has to be the random strangers that are for, from a foreign country that just moved in down the street. It has to be them. When statistically speaking, it's probably Bob. Also hurts court cases. Because people that are family members or friends, the public is less likely to believe that that they could be a culprit in this. Because organizations like this are loudly saying that, no, it's these other things. you, You have to be scared of them. They do it all the time. There's also a lot of weird stuff with their financials. Um. Most organizations that deal with 
trafficking of human beings and stuff like that, including the organization that the U.S. government leans on and uses for information and to help with this stuff the most, most of them operate in a deficit or with very little money they're making. You know what I mean? They typically spend more money than they bring in, you know. Uh, this organization typically runs at a $40, 50000000 million profit a year, which is very odd in this, in this particular industry of things. Uh, there is also a statistical probability that the way they go and hunt down traffic rings and all these other things might actually be helping create markets for traffickers. Because one thing they are known to do is to go into foreign countries and go to bars and clubs and just walk around asking, hey, do you have any children I can buy? Which then causes people that do that stuff to go, oh, hey, there's a market here. Let me go steal some kids and bring them there. Type of shit. And like I said, it's all a lie. Uh, These people... The, the, the Ballard guy and Jim Conviesel both believe that Democrats uh, kill babies for Satan after they scare them so they, they can uh, drink their adrenaline, essentially. It's called adrenochrome is what they call it. It's a, it's a QAnon conspiracy theory that we have referenced before on this show. Hardcore mm-hmm. believers in that. Uh, all of us are essentially uh, devil-worshipping kid murderers. Especially me. I'm a, I'm a double whammy. I don't know, Justin. You're black. They might have more issues with you. But, yeah, I imagine so. <laughs> but I am an actual Satanist, so uh, it might be a toss-up for somebody like this. It's like, what do they have more that day? Racism or crazy conspiracy theories? (laughs) And that's probably a real struggle for them. I imagine so. (laughs) And then, Heather, you're just a bad Christian because you're friends with people like us. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, yay, sound of freedom. So good. Such a a must-see movie. Go hurt, you know, people, the actual people that stop child sex trafficking. Go hurt their organizations. Go see the movie. But if you, t- but if you mention this to any of them, that's because you're part of the problem. Mm. Of course. Of course. Right. Interesting. So. Yeah, the only thing I saw about that is um, probably from a uh, conspiracy thing is that um, I saw somebody was like, oh, yeah, I went to go see the movie. They said that the movie theater was sold out and I went in there and nobody else was in there. And so they're just like they're just saying that because they're trying to, like, get people to not watch this movie to see the truth of things. So they're pretending like the seats are bought out when they're not. Something like that is what the only thing I saw about this movie. The thing is, is if they didn't want people to see the movie, they just uh, wouldn't have it. 
<laughs> exactly. <laughs> Makes sense. And all these people were like, man, it's beating Indy. This movie didn't even beat Indiana Jones at the box office. I want to fucking hear about it. You can't put up flash m- numbers. I don't want to hear about your shit. When you're talking about how it's a must see. Do they say something? I wonder if they say something in this movie about based on a true story oh, or yes. inspired yes. by true events or something. Yes, that's okay. what this is. Yeah. This is the true story about Ballard Fuckhead McGee or whatever the fuck his name is. And the reason why I don't know his name isn't because I couldn't learn it. I don't respect him enough to learn his name. So I'm not even really trying to do a joke. I just think that's his last name and that's all I remember. But. So that's that. Aren't you glad you picked S, Justin? You mean Heather? Or Heather? Whoever. Whoever the (laughs) fuck picked S. Mm. I am actually glad you did because that's something I wanted to talk about. So I was like, oh, that lined up perfectly for me. Um, In other news, also dealing with the letter S. Because I am on point tonight. Uh, Some more information about the SAG and WGA strikes. So you get SAG and strikes. Double S's. Nice. So one of the things that... Or so the, the Writers Guild proposals. This is just Writers Guild. This is not the SAG stuff, but just Writers Guild. So the amount of money that they are asking for, especially from streaming sites and studios, to increase wages and to also increase residual payments would cost all of the studios that are in that organization, like AMTA or whatever, all of them. So it's like Paramount. Warner Brothers, Sony, MGM, Disney, Apple, Netflix, all of them. It would cost them around, all of them, combined, only $430 million a year to give them all of the pay increases that writers are asking for. That's it. And to break it down even further, I can actually tell you how much it would cost each studio a year. Now, remember, this is what they're saying they couldn't possibly pay. Disney, it would cost them $75 million a year. That's it. Netflix, $68 million. Warner Brothers Discovery, 47 Paramount, 45 NBC Universal, 34 Amazon, 32 Sony, 25 and Apple, 17 that's all it would cost them like a year. Doable numbers to me. Don't like. Doesn't that sound like the most reasonable fucking ask ever from a fucking billion right. dollar conglomerates? Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's the entire extra. If you do so, like I said, for Disney, think about how many movies and TV shows they put out a year. Let's just be conservative. Let's say it's what, 33? Let's just say across the board, they do 33 movies, TV shows, everything combined between Disney, ABC, and Disney Plus. 
That's two million a show or movie. That's it. Look at Netflix. Netflix puts out what? 68 Netflix original movies and TV shows a week. It feels like they're just constantly just putting random ass shit out there. There's shit on there. They're like, hey, we released this two years ago. And it's like a nine season thing. And it's just the most random fucking thing. You've never heard of it. And it's like, yeah, Netflix original. But yeah, I mean, that's like $1 million a movie or show. That's it. The only one that I think actually probably does not have a problem with their number is probably Apple. But because they're a part of that whole studio conglomerate, they can't, you know, go against it. But to them, it's $17 million and they're like, oh, fuck, we could sneeze that amount of money. We don't give a shit. You know, plus since they're the only streaming service to win an Academy Award, I bet they're like, fuck, yeah, we'll do it. I mean, yeah. So. But yeah, that's the big stuff when it comes to that. Uh, well, I think I've got one more thing. Oh, yes. I've got one more thing I pulled up. Um, so. You want to hear some numbers of these are the top meet. Uh, these are the top media and entertainment executives that saw. Um, these are their pay packages for the years 2020 and 2021. So Ari Emanuel, who is a part of an endeavor, which I don't remember who they run, but anyway, he made $14 million in 2020 made 380 million in 2021. That's an increase of 2040% and their stock performance only went up 27%. Wow. David Zaslav, the most useless person in all of this, the head of WB Discovery, he made 37.7 million in 2020, made 246 million in 2021. And Discovery Warner Brothers stock went down 32%. And he still increased his earnings by 554%. Andy Jossi, wow. uh, the head of Amazon Studios, uh, his pay went from $35.8 million in 2020 to $217 million in 2021. Um, with the stock increase, so that's an overall increase of 494%. With the stock increase of only 5%. Bob Iger of Disney, 21.7 million in 2020, 45.9 million in 2021, an increase of 119%. Stock went down 13%. And Tom Rutledge of Charter, which I think that's also Comcast or something like that, uh, which is also NBC Universal. Uh, his went $38.8 million in 2022, $41.9 million, an increase of only 8%, with a stock gain of also 3%. But, you know, they can't possibly find this money. Yep. 200-something percent increase, but they can't find it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> can't possibly find Ridiculous. this. The amount of money that the Flash lost WB could almost fund all of this. Right. All of it for all the studios. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. Oh, how terrible. Uh, and one of the things also, SAG released a thing, and I'll probably talk about this more next week. SAG released their list of what their demands were and what the studio's responses were to them. Um, one of them was that they would increase the penalties that studios would pay when they pay their people late. And the studios went, no, we can't do that, but we're also going to admit that, yes, we pay people late, and no, we're not going to stop. Um, one of the other things they asked for, uh, that was kind of a big deal or, or, or a weird thing, was to increase the amount of time that they give for meal breaks because the number that they still use in all their contracts was established in 1961. Also, the last time the Writers Guild and SAG went on strike together. Also, when residuals became a thing. Um, so last week when I was talking about residuals and how it's been a very long and time-honored tradition, yeah, for 63 years, studios have been t- paying residuals. They can fucking keep paying them. Um, anyway, uh, but yeah, they haven't increased the amount of time they essentially get to eat whilst filming since 1961, and the studios are like, no, we can't possibly. We can't possibly give you more time to eat. That's absurd. Wow. It's crazy. But uh, A24 made a deal with SAG. So A24 actually gets to make movies right now. Oh. Really? Yeah. And so the way that this happens... Uh, for indie films and SAG or, or other studios that are not a part of the, that studio group, um, the way you can get your stuff made still is you just go to SAG and you make an arrangement with them. And all it is is you agree essentially to work as of right now based on what SAG is wanting. You know, So you don't negotiate down anything. You just say, hey, what your requests are, we're going to honor that right now. And then when a deal is finalized uh, with residual payments and all this other stuff, we will honor that automatically. And that's pretty much all you got to do. And A24 is like, sure, mm-hmm. we'll do that. Yeah. And A24 gets to make movies right now. Interesting. I They've mean, got a couple with like Paul Rudd and Jen Ortega. There's another one with, I don't know, there's some movie with Matthew McConaughey that's going right now. Um, yeah, there's a few movies being made right now. Okay. And yeah, that's why. Okay. So. That might be all we get to see in 2024. Are these fucking indie movies that are getting made now might be the biggest movies ever next year because they're the only fucking things that will come out. Right. I know. That'd be crazy, man. Well, we said Hollywood might might need to go cheaper with some of these movies, and yeah, it might exactly be what happens. <laughs> uh, one last quick thing: uh, Disney might sell itself to Apple. So, that's another rumor. Hmm. That'd be the weirdest thing in the world. Uh, but apparently, right now, Disney is shopping around Freeform, ABC. And ESPN, or no, Freeform, ABC, 
and something else, not ESPN. But anyway, they're shopping around some of their stuff to see if anybody wants to buy it. And then, uh, interesting. And they also might sell Disney Plus. And they also might, uh, but they want to do an overall package, which might be to Apple. So, those are all apparently things that could happen. As crazy as it sounds. You guys ready to to record about or to talk about our movie now? <laughs> Is that our mission that you want to do? Are you choosing to accept, if you will? Yeah, just uh, wrapping my yes. head around all that information, but yes. I'm glad you guys didn't let me go for like 18 minutes straight. Justin did talk for like 30 seconds in there. So I only did most of 25 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> All right. Here's the song. Somebody will listen to me. Nobody knows anything but you. Cinema Slayers. Hey, Cinema fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Cinema Slayers podcast. I'm Sterling, and as always, I'm joined by Heather and Justin. And tonight we're going to talk about what we liked, didn't like, and everything in between with Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, Volume 7. We are going to go... Spoiler-free recommendations and scores, and then into a more spoiler-centric section with time codes in the description to allow you to jump around if you so require. And with all of that, Justin, what are your spoiler-free feelings about the latest Ethan Hunt mission, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning Part 1? All right. So I guess it's just almost a fact at this point that if Tom Cruise appears on screen before a movie and says, thank you for coming to movie, said movie is probably going to be good. So, so I mean, <laughs> one thing that we, uh, that me and Heather get to experience because we go to AMCs that you don't, Justin is it went from Nicole Kidman doing her AMC spiel to Tom Cruise. <laughs> That's it. Back to back. That was a treat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm really jealous of you guys right now. Um, too bad that wasn't my experience, but at least I got Tom. Terrific Tom. And I mean, it, I think we've been talking about this whole thing about summer blockbusters and how Nothing's a blockbuster because everything's a blockbuster. Slow your roll. This is what I think a summer blockbuster needs to be. It this kind of made me alive, didn't it. it? It did. This it did. is a summer blockbuster. The others are impersonators. Like, will the real summer blockbuster please stand up? <laughs> it has stood the hell up. I mean, that's what that's what it was. We got a bunch of impersonators, but 
this is the real shit right here. Like this movie is a lot of fun. It's just the, the action set pieces are what you expect from MI. And just when you think they run out of ideas, they come up with another crazy idea. And you were like, and you're sitting there watching this and you're like, who thought of this? Like, like how did you go from us? Like having to stuck in between a mountain and helicopters in a, after a helicopter chase in the last film and then go to something like this. And, and you, you watch this and, and I won't say what it is exactly, but it involves a train and I'm just sitting there going, who thought of this? Like who conceptualized this and thought this is what we're going to do in the film. And I've just, you know, I'm just blown away by what they're able to do with this series every time. Um, it, it's, it's, it's great, man. It, it's easily one of, if not the best action movie of the summer. Now it has some competition, you know, John Wick came out this year. There's been some other movies that come out this year that would, that might be like, I, I, I got something to say about that, but boy, I don't know, man. I think there are some action scenes in here that I will never forget. There's a car chase in here that now might be in my list of like great car chases just because of how they did it. Like, because it was funny, but it was exciting. And it was just like everything you want from an action sequence like that. And like, I know I'm spending a lot of time talking about the action, but even this story kind of feels relevant to today with kind of what's going on with Hollywood and this idea about being replaced by computers and all, all of this stuff and, and, you know, getting scanned and using your likeness because of a computer and stuff. And then we kind of have this storyline of, you know, Tom Cruise, like the quintessential Hollywood, like movie star, and we're going up against AI, you know, we're going up against computers. So it almost in a way, and who knows, and obviously they didn't think that this is where we would be, but now the movie has some sort of relevancy in that way as well, just with what's happening with the story. And the story is very good. It, there are a lot of good twisted turns. Um, there were some fun additions to this, like Haley Atwell, who plays Grace, good old Peggy Carter, Captain Carter, you know, um, f- from the Marvel series. I-, I liked her in this. I didn't know how I would like the character at first. And I thought that, OK, is this going to be just like a short thing or but, but um, I wound up liking the character. The character grew on me. And I think the movie did a, told an effective enough story for that to happen because we've grown so accustomed to the usual characters like like, you know, Tom Cruise and Ving Rhames and Simon and uh, um, Rebecca Ferguson. You know, we've grown used to them. We're invested in them. So sometimes I think it can be a challenge this late in the game to introduce another character and have them sort of mesh and fit with what's happening. But I think she slides in perfectly. You know what I mean? You know, there was a little bit of room. 
We slid her in, and I think that it, it gets the job done. Her and Cruz were good on screen together. So I'm excited to see what they do with the second part of this. Um, so, yeah, man, um, uh, this was just an enjoyable good time. This, to me, defines what a popcorn summer movie good time is. It was funny. It was it had great action. It was thrilling at times. It was exciting at times. It's got a good story. And I mean, it's everything you want from the Mission Impossible franchise. Like I went back and rewatched all of them like, (laughs) you know, and at first I was like, man, do I really want to do this? But dude, like they're easy watches like, uh, well, the second one was a little rough. I was about to say there's a big exception in there to what you said. <laughs> that one was a little rough, but watching them back to back to back like that, it's it's kind of fun because like by the time you get to the third movie, you can see that they are starting to figure out a winning formula. They just haven't mastered it yet. And then like then like four, five, and six is just almost and, and even this one, I'll loop it in there is almost a complete mastery of this formula. And they just know what they're doing, man. So by this time, everybody now is a seasoned vet of what works. And they know what works, man. So they got me again. I love this. This is one of my top movies for the summer. Um, And who knows, maybe by the time we get to the end of this year, I'll still be talking about it. And even though it is two hours and 40 minutes long, which, I mean, it, which is laugh. That is long as fuck. But you know what? I enjoyed it. I, I was I was excited the whole time. I didn't feel like I was watching a two hour forty minute movie. And that last and that third act is freaking exciting, man. Like that third act is pretty thrilling. It's pretty exciting stuff. And it what it didn't even end in a cliche cliffhanger way like we've gotten a lot of cliffhangers um in this round of movies um but but i like how this one like i like how they chose to end this as far as like they, they didn't do it the typical way that they didn't go a similar path of the other movies and i think that that's a good thing i think it's good how they chose to cliffhang this, if you will. So all in all, man, I had a fun time at the movies. It was a very good experience and bravo to them. This is another very good, great Mission Impossible film. Not yet, Heather. I'm going in the middle today. I just want to change it up. I slightly disagree with you, Justin. It did feel a little long to me. I think they could have cut a little bit, trimmed it just a hair. But if you're going to make a case for a movie being this long, this is probably the best way to do it. It's... It's everything you could want in a Mission Impossible movie. The Mission Impossible movies are one of my favorite franchises out there. Uh, 
Because to me, one still holds up. I rewatched one and I'm like, man, that, this movie's still really fucking good. I still really dig it. Two somehow sucks even more. Um, well, it's funny because it's like just the tonal shift between the two is so different. Yes, it's, That's what makes it super weird. Like the super serious, like very thrilling first one. And then the second one feels like a product of the, you know, early 2000s. Very hokey and just strange. Yeah. Yeah. The choice to bring John Woo in for that. Just. Yeah. Like at the time on paper, that seemed like a good choice because at because, you know, the Matrix was kind of inspired by some of that stuff and that had just come out. And John Woo was like making the rounds for like these action movies and stuff like that. And some of the foreign stuff, the killer and some of that stuff, like it's some good, like action well, movie shit. You know what I'm saying? He also did face off. He, he yeah, showed he could do American action movies. Yeah. Yeah. But his brand of action was such a styles clash with what mission impossible is and what Ethan Hunt is as a character. It wasn't even the same Ethan Hunt, man. He he wasn't using his cunning as much or like even the way he fought and everything. This dude is jumping and flipping around in slow motion. That's just not Ethan Hunt, bro. That's just not the character. So like whenever it got to part three, like when, when, like this is why it's fun to watch them all on the road. This is the last thing. I won't spend too much time on this, but I want to take your point away from you. But like. When you go from two to three and it starts with Philip Seymour Hoffman and he's got him captured and he's like, you know, and, and he and he's got uh, his girl at gunpoint and he's like, you're going to tell me in 10 seconds or I'm going to shoot her. And it's all intense. And he's and Tom is beat up and he's begging like, please, no, please, no. And Ethan's just begging. And then you hear the gun go off. It is a complete 180 turn from like part two. And I was like, damn, dude, MI3 might have saved this series. Like, for real. When when you watch them, like, in a row like that. Yeah. John Woo was at his most wooiness with Mission Impossible <laughs> 2. And it just does yeah. not work. And Mission Impossible 3, I am not as high on that as a lot of people. It's okay. It's it's an improvement and all this other stuff. But this franchise, to me, gets back to its roots and then expands upon them and grows the tree with the ghost protocol. Like, the one is the seed. And then two is a drought. And then three is when they actually sprinkle some water on it. And four <laughs> is now the tree growing. You know, it's now with the, the seed grew yeah. into um and they just keep going i mean i i did the same thing justin i rewatched them all and man especially four five six and seven one of my favorite things they do it's always the second scheme i love the second scheme like they've got this the main scheme that's playing out and that you think is what's happening and then all of a sudden it goes bad and they're like oh no and then all of a sudden they're like but Second scheme. And you're like, ah, oh, they got me. Those yeah. are so 
fucking good in these movies. As far as second scheming goes, it's Fallout might be the king. Fallout has like 97 second schemes throughout that movie, and they all feel so good. Every time yeah. they get revealed, you're just like, ooh, that was that was tricky. It was nice. Yeah, going back and watching them, I used to think four or five were the best ones. But when I watched them back to back to back, I could not say objectively that Fallout wasn't the best one. It, it, See, it, pro- it probably is of those three, but it's I, marginal. Like, it, it, I mean, you might you. I mean, if somebody argues the other one, it, it's going to be hard to argue against them. But I just think. I I really liked how it was done. I liked the story. To me, the story of it is almost as good as the story in the fifth one, which I think overall has a better story. But I think the action set pieces, the um, the addition of Henry Cavill, he was great in it. Uh, I the 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 thrilling action sequence with the helicopters at the end. I think it wins by the narrowest of margins, I think. And I've been I've been the largest Ghost Protocol fan you'll ever meet. To me, it could not possibly get any better than Ghost Protocol. But when I did my watch through, I was like, man, that fallout though. It's it's something it's special. There. And the I'm like, parachute jump when he I'm was like, knocked out and he's trying to wake him up in free fall. Like, God, there's so many raw parts in that. But it's like, it's like, did I flip on it? I'm like, did I turn my back on Ghost Protocol? Did I? Because that fallout, I mean, it it's just so good. It is just truly something special. And then you get into this movie. It's like, where are you going to go from that? How are you going to keep this train going? Well, you do that by making the movie that both Indiana Jones and Fast X wanted to be. How did this movie out car chase the last two Fast and Furious movies? Yeah. It put them to shame. To shame. And how did this movie out train scene an indiana jones movie if any franchise is set up to have iconic train scenes it should be the indiana jones franchise but i'd argue especially this last one it doesn't measure up to either one of the chain train scenes in this franchise going back to one and this one and i think one of the very special things about this This movie had a lot of callbacks to one. This movie has a lot of callbacks to one. And apparently that was purely accidental when they were writing this movie. They were just writing the movie and apparently organically, like none of it was intentional. They just kind of started referencing one a lot. And they went, hey, we're just going to keep running with that. And I don't fault them for that. I will say the amount of humor in this movie caught me off guard a little bit because they went 
very, very hard on the humor a couple of times. And I'm not saying that it didn't land. I'm just saying it caught me off guard with how much they went to humor in this movie. It was good jokes. They were funny parts. But when I'm seeing a Mission Impossible movie, I'm expecting some jokes here and there. I'm expecting a few quips. I'm expecting a few ha-has. They went very hard into it in this movie. And that caught me off guard. And I'm still to this point right now, a few days removed from it, not quite sure how I feel about it. I don't necessarily feel bad about it. I don't feel like it's a negative against this movie. But I still don't know if I'd love that they did that. So, I don't know. Unfortunately, as of tonight, I still can't tell you where I land on that. And I do slightly disagree with you, Justin, about the end. I think that the movie suffers a little bit at the end because of what you brought up. They go a little bit cleaner at the end of this movie, but they're openly acknowledging it's a two-part movie. And to me, I think you missed an opportunity at the end of this movie by maybe giving it a, a slight, at least a slight cliffhanger, something. I think that they went a little too clean at the end of this movie. And I think that adds to the runtime a little bit. And we all know how I feel about long movies. It's just a hair too long. I, I'm, I signed up for a lot of it. It's just, it gets a little too long. It's kind of like John Wick 4. It's the same thing. I'm on board for most of it. But it got, it got a hair too long in the end. Both In both of those movies, if you're going to try to change my mind about having a long movie, John Wick 4 and Mission Impossible 7 are your best chances at doing it. Because fuck, they were so good. But just a hair too long. But... I mean, this movie, I mean, man, like like you said, Justin, it, it made me, what, in two weeks? In, or what? No, didn't I say that last week? Because I think we were talking about The Flash. I don't remember. Maybe it was Indiana Jones or maybe it was last week in the news section. I don't remember. But yeah, it made me eat my words real quick about blockbusters. It's not that every movie is a blockbuster, Therefore, there are no blockbusters. It's too many movies are trying to be blockbusters. And Mm -hmm. only the true blockbusters are succeeding. This succeeded. I mean, this is... And this encapsulates everything that, you know, like, you know, Tom Cruise came on the the screen before the movie and he's like, hey, man... You love movies because you're seeing this in theaters, and we love movies too, so we're so glad you're seeing it in theaters. I mean, shit, if you're going to see a movie in the theaters, it might as well be this. Because, I mean, fuck, this is great. And unlike other directors, this movie will also look fantastic on your iPad when you watch it in a year. It's fine. But no, it's, it's a real good, fun movie, though, in the end. Like, as much as I have some problems here and there, not enough to make me not like the movie. It's still a really fucking good movie. Heather, what about you? 
Yeah, it definitely does have some flaws to it and some choices they make that I probably would have changed. But overall, yeah, it is really good. Like, um, I, I'm kind of in you guys' boat about the previous movies. Like, uh, Fallout is so good. And Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation, all of them, so good. And honestly, the original Mission Impossible, like, I know it's not a super highly ranked one in the scheme of them all, but I still love the first Mission Impossible. I still think it's a really good one. I think it's a smart movie. I think the way they do the spy thriller thing with it is really well done. So I, I'm still a fan of the first one and I think it still holds up. So I, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because yeah, like kind of like what you guys said, I was thinking too, I'm like, man, they're trying to do too many big movies this summer. And then you're right. It's almost like none of that matters because this movie trumped all of them. (laughs) Like it just, it, it, that's just what happened, you know, because this, this movie and the mission impossible movies in general, they just know how to really do what they do. Like they just do what they do really well every time, except for, you know, two, (laughs) but it's, it's one of those where, yes, it was a long movie, but I will say, I don't think that for me, it felt as long as it was. Um, but also the fact that it's what 20 minutes longer than Indiana Jones and Indiana Jones felt like it dragged a little bit for me. (laughs) Like it's just crazy. The difference that just how you do your movie and just like a longer movie can feel shorter because it's just a better movie. Like it's crazy to me, but yeah, it's, that's just kind of how it turned out at least for me. Um, I, I do, I do think they did a lot of humor in this, but I genuinely at one point laughed out loud in the theater at this one. And I'm okay with that because I, I think the reason that the humor works in this movie is because they, for one, they don't linger on it, right? Like it's not one of those where they do the funny joke and then they're just like banking on that joke the rest of the movie or doing like callbacks of like, Oh, let's not do this and blah, blah, blah. Like they, they just, have it be that funny moment and then they move on from it and it kind of makes it like a little treasure in the movie and I think that's part of why it works well when they do the humor as much as they did in this movie and the fact that the characters that you see especially in certain parts of this movie that are involved in those funny moments they're still playing it straight they're still playing it like just they're they're not going out of character for themselves necessarily for these funny moments. And so I think that's why the humor works well in this, even though you're right, it is way more than any of the other movies, (laughs) but that's, but I appreciated that because it didn't take away from the characters or take away from the, just the solidness of what this movie is just for the sake of the humor. And that's how you do humor in a movie like this. You know, so yeah, I, I actually really appreciated the, the funny moments they had in this movie. They, they did add some new characters this time around, of course, and I liked them. I liked the characters they added. I think the villains are good villains. Um, Isai Morales was great as, you know, our, our big bad. Um, Pom Klementiov was excellent. I loved 
Palm in this movie. I think she was really, really good. And Haley Atwell, I agree, Justin. I think she was a good addition. Um, there's there's kind of a caveat with that, but we'll talk about that later. And but yeah, I I liked their dynamic. I liked her chemistry with uh, Tom Cruise's character. I thought that, that worked really well. They played off of each other well, and so for the most part, I would say I was on board for her as a new addition to this film. Um, yeah, it's. I mean. I just feel like every Mission Impossible movie has that one scene that you're just like, remember in that movie they did this? And you just know it's it's that one big thing. And it's probably the same ones that you're always talking about, Jason, that are like, who comes up with this? <laughs> like, Who comes up with this crazy one bit of action that is just mind-blowing? Like, it's they, there's at least one in every one of these movies. And I love it because it's not the only good action that they do in the movies, but it's, and it works well as crazy and ridiculous as it seems like it's going to be, they pull it off. They pull it off without it being like, well, that was stupid. (laughs) You're just kind of like, nope, that was pretty awesome. Yes, I'm in for it. So it's, it's just kind of the they they know when to restrain. They know when to push forward with the certain things that they push forward with. They just know how to navigate these films that well and not be lazy on the story aspect of it either. And that's why these movies just work so well. Um, yeah, I mean, and just, you know, Tom Cruise being the most impressive action hero there is by doing his own stunts all the time. Like, I just... I'm never going to get over that man being what 60 something years old and just living his life. Like he's 25. Like <laughs> just, it's impressive. It's very impressive, but yeah, um, it, it was, it was a really good entry into the franchise of mission impossible movies. I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite of them, but it's definitely by no means bad. Um, I mean, I would probably give it a top three spot. Uh, just depending on the day. But yeah, it's a really good movie for sure. I think the funny thing with this franchise at this point is my bar with this is more or less just don't, don't dip like, don't dip in quality. Just be of the same quality. You don't always have to go bigger. You don't have to like each one doesn't have to be my new favorite. You know what I mean? Like, I don't have to, like, be like, oh, nope, seven's now my favorite. Because, like, you don't have to go to those levels. Just be in the ballpark. Yeah. Just be close to that. Don't don't pull a fucking Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> yeah. Just keep doing what you're doing. Don't go fucking crazy and change it up. And I think one Kinda of the like big John changes Wick. in it yeah. is uh, Chris McQuarrie, the director of these. And it's also one of Tom Cruise's production partners. He's been doing the. He's been directing all of these movies since five, so he's done five, six, seven, and and eight when eight comes out. So, you know, and I think that helps now. It's kind of given it that stabilization factor. It's giving it that stable quality that really helps it. That's a you know, a big noticeable thing with this. Uh, recommendations and score. Yep. Yep. I hiccuped right in the middle of saying scores. Recommendations and score. Go, Heather. 
Yeah, I for sure recommend it. Um, it's it is a great action film. It's fun. It's clever. It's engaging. Um, it does have solid acting. It has great action sequences. Um, great characters. Yeah, there's there's not really a reason to not go see this movie. It's it's fun. It's it's what you want for a summer blockbuster. I'm going to go see my one movie a year in the summertime. If that's the person you are, this is the one that, you know, you do it for. <laughs> this is the one I would say probably do it for of all the ones we've seen. Um, yeah, I, I just I, I'm impressed and I am delighted in like you were talking about earlier, Sterling, with the just be of the same quality. The fact that they can all of these are so smart and so just thoughtful and done so well that just staying at that same pace for even more of these is what all you can really ask for at this point. And they, they nailed that and they nail it every time after five. <laughs> um, so, or after four, but yeah, it's, it, it's really good. Um, I would definitely recommend it. And I think, yeah, it's a great one to see in theaters, but it is also going to be a great one. You can revisit later when um, it's on streaming or, you know, DVD or however you watch it. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's great and definitely up there for me on top of the Mission Impossible franchise films. I'm going to give this 90 parachutes for one. Out of a hundred, Justin. What about you? Yeah, it's tight, man. So it's going to be a recommend <laughs> for me. Um, That'd be funny if that's all you said. Yeah, it's tight. Bye. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> One day I'm going to do that, but I have to wait till you forget about <laughs> this moment so that it'll be it'll feel more authentic um, when I do it. But yeah, like it, it's on point, man. Like I said, the real summer blockbuster has stood up amongst all the impersonators and would-be blockbusters. This is definitely it. And we'll see what these other movies got, man. We'll see. Uh, we got some more stuff coming down the pipe. Um, gearing up for a big weekend this weekend with Oppenheimer and Barbie and you know, but I just wonder if those movies can live up to all this hype. You know, I just wonder what's going to happen with that. But this is a proven commodity. This is a proven series now. And this is mastery of understanding how to have fun in a film, how to tell a story in a film and having real star power. And that's what Tom Cruise is, man, that, that he is a real he is the real deal, bonafide star. And sometimes that, when you mesh that with other people who are just very talented at what they do, you can't go wrong. And this movie doesn't go wrong. And um, and like I said, I think that it, it has some thrilling action sequences, so that's on point. It has an interesting story that that I can't wait to see how they tell the rest of it. But what they did in this movie, the, the the characters that they set up, and to me, the way it ends is good enough to where it's like, man, I can't wait to see how um, 
what they're going to do with the rest of the story, because I felt that it ends in a very interesting place, like a place that I didn't expect them to go. But if anybody is up for the challenge to do their ending a little bit different and say, hey, we're going to do it this way and see what we do and you and guess what we're going to do with the next one. I have full faith and confidence that this will end well. I have no reason to believe that there will be a dip in quality. Um, So, yeah, it's great. I think that this is one that you got to go see because it's just that good. Um, And hopefully the word of mouth, like domestically, it did all right. It did great internationally. Like that's where it really made a lot of its money. But I'm hoping that the word of mouth helps it. I hope that that will keep, will help some people who maybe didn't give it a chance at first come into the door. Because that's sort of what happened with Top Gun. So we'll see if that um, can happen with this. Uh, Though that's where probably the length is going to hurt it, is like the rewatchability. Because, you know, it's a two-hour and 40-minute movie. And depending on who you are, you re- that means you really got to plan like three hours, three and a half hours or four hours. Because, you know, you you count the time getting to the movie, the the, the time leaving the movie, well, the, the, the previews. Yeah, trailers the trailers. I was minutes. about to say, yeah, the, the, the trailers. So the, it's so long. You got to plan four hours almost to see the movie. So that I think will hurt the rewatchability of it, like Mario, it was so easy to just go. It's an, it's a, it's 90 minutes. Like, I mean, you know, who ain't got 90 minutes, but this is a little different. You know what I'm saying? So this is a different animal entirely to be rewatching. So hopefully the word of mouth helps it. With that being said, we'll go with 92. No, I could go higher than that. No, I could go higher than that. We'll go a little higher than that. We'll go one more point higher. We'll go uh we'll go 93. Um trying to hold your breath for three minutes while doing a bunch of shit <laughs> out of a hundred. Uh I do recommend it. I agree with Justin. I doubt it's going to get a lot of rewatch, you know, a lot of theater rewatches with that length. Um, Because, like I said, with trailers, it's three hours. You know, minimum three hours. Uh, But, I mean, this is this has been one of the better movies to go to in a few weeks. You know, it's this movie succeeds where so many movies this summer, especially, have already failed. You've had a Flash movie that, you know, has been in development or announced or whatever in some way, shape, or form for like 10 fucking years. Like it failed. You had Indiana Jones 5 fail. Like you had Fast 10 fail. So many movies failed. There were big franchise shit. And Tom Cruise just comes in going, fuck you, I'm Tom Cruise. Watch my movie. 
basically. That's what he really said at the beginning before the movie. More or less. <laughs> he was just coming on screen before the movie came on just saying, fuck all you other guys. I'm Tom right. Cruise. This is why we come to the movies. And you made the right decision. Right. Exactly. Because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, this movie does succeed. I'm going to give this movie 92. Somehow Ving Rames as Luther shops at Tommy Bahama, yet is a secret agent super spy for seven fucking movies. And it still just works out of a hundred. Yep. Mm-hmm. With that, our official CineScore is also a 92. Spoilers. Yep. Yep. Spoilers. First and foremost, the thing that needs to be talked about the most, that fucking car chase scene in that fucking Fiat. Like, how the fuck did they come up with that? Brilliant. Brilliant. I mean... And that's one of the scenes that I'm talking about when I'm like, they put in a lot of jokes because you get joke one of find secure car. And he's like, yeah, it's this car. Bam. Nah, it's the Fiat. And he's like, oh, yeah. And then they're trying to get in the car, but they're handcuffed to each other. So they're like, oh, what do we do? And then he gets in the car and he fucks up driving it a little bit. And he's like, you know, this doesn't typically happen to me. You know, every car is a little different. It takes me a little bit to get used to it. Just, you know, it, uh, I'll get better. And then, and then it goes to that scene where they, they're flipping around so much they swap seats. And then it goes from that to <laughs> Haley Atwell driving in a circle 9,000 times right in front of Palm's character, <laughs> Paris, who wants to murder them, but is also like, what the <laughs> fuck is going on? Like, that's yeah. what I'm saying is there were so many jokes like like all back to back like that. And I'm like, they don't typically do that in these movies like that. They don't go that hard with jokes that quickly. And that like it was so joke dense in that scene. I'm like, they don't typically do that. But where this movie does succeed with that is while it is jokey and all this other stuff. And like I said, it kind of throws me for a loop a little bit. That was a damn good car chasing, though. It was a damn good... Like, when you go to just the car chase elements of it, oh, they succeeded. Just hands out so quickly. So, so, and it's funny, when I mentioned Fast X earlier with it, I bring that up because the big fucking car chase scene in Fast X, the, the, the one early in the movie, takes place in the Vatican. This one also takes place in Italy. There are two fucking car chases that take place in Italy. They are that fucking similar. Yet one of them is good. And the other one is just not. There's no tension in that. There's no, you know, they try making jokes in those movies. You know, like, it's weird how this movie also out jokes the Fast Fast 10 which is known to also have some humor in it. This movie does it. Fast 10 didn't. 
So it's just so weird that this movie did all the things Fast X wanted to do. And yet somehow does none of them anywhere remotely as well as this movie did. Nothing. Nothing in Fast 10 is as good as in this movie. Nothing. Right down to they are also both part ones of multiple movie long stories. And like I said, I have some slight issues with this because I think they go a little too clean at the end of this movie. I think they wrap it up a little too neatly to end this part to go into the next one. But if I have to take that in this movie, I will take that any day over to that bullshit fucking ending that was Fast X. Yep. You know, I kind of wish there was a slight cliffhanger in this. You know, just a slight something, like a slight sense of urgency to go into what the story will be in uh, Dead Reckoning Part 2. I think that that's what it is. It doesn't have to necessarily be a cliffhanger, but just something to give it a little urgency going into the movie. You know, because like while they do have the next part of the mission, I'm just talking about something directly imminent that they need to address right away. Something like that, I think, is what I would have wanted at the end of this movie. And I think they take a little bit of extra time setting up the ending by by doing some stuff at the end of this movie just to kind of wrap it up a little bit that I think you wouldn't have needed to do if you gave it something else to give it urgency. That being said... My only major concern, though, going into this next movie is the Haley Atwell character and her introduction also being the death of the Rebecca Ferguson character. Was it Ilsa? Mm-hmm. Ilsa Faust. I, I don't know if I'm okay with that yet. But... I'm not going to hold that against this movie yet. I'll have to wait and see. If they do good with Haley Atwell in the next movie, okay. I'll I'll understand you getting rid of Rebecca Ferguson a little bit. But I'm a little bit bitter about it because fuck, I loved her character. I loved her in these movies. I loved the yeah. fact that she was in five and six and then a lot in this movie. And so I'm still kind of a little bummed that she's not going to be back. Because that's one thing this franchise does not do between movies is they don't bring back people from the dead. They've done that in movies, like within the same movie as the twist. Looking at John Voight's character in like, you know, one, you know, stuff like that. But that was like a faked death. You know, like that was an intentionally staged death. It was things like that, you know. So one thing this franchise does not do is it does not have people that obviously die randomly come back to life. They have not done that. So, you know, it's kind of a wait and see with Rebecca Ferguson's character. The impact it has of her leaving and Haley Atwell's now introduction into the franchise. So like I said, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt because this franchise has earned it. This movie earns the benefit of the doubt right now. You know, 
so I'll, I'll, I'll let them establish an eight if it's worth it or not. We'll see. I'll give it the benefit of the doubt. But that doesn't mean that right now I'm not still, like I said, a little bummed. Just because I fucking loved her character. Weird little bit of trivia. Uh, in this movie, and it shows it in the trailer. And in this movie, when she's a sniper, she wears an eye patch. Do you know why? No, I was wondering it, actually. She cannot close one eye at a time. Really? Oh. Essentially, Rebecca Ferguson cannot wink. Huh. Okay. Oh, okay. That was their solution to it. It looked cool, but I was oh, curious yeah. why they did that's, it. <laughs> that's, that's the cool, that's the nice side effect of it. It looks really cool. Although most snipers would want two eyes. You still would keep both eyes open, but still. It looks cool as fuck when she puts that eye patch on. So, but yeah, that's why she can't, she can't close just one eye. A little bit of trivia for you. I really dug Kittredge being back in this movie too. I did not realize how much I missed Kittredge until this movie. There was just something so good about that slimy bastard being back in this fucking movie that I dug so much. It gave me all these good feelings when Kittredge is there and they're having that fucking description and all this other stuff. I also really like Alec Baldwin in Fallout. I think it's Fallout. It might be Rogue Nation. Calls Ethan Hunt an agent of destiny. Which that's kind of cool, whatever. It's kind of like, you know, it's all John Wickian, like the force of nature type of thing. I love Kittrich's description of Ethan Hunt in this movie better, though. That he is like an agent of chaos. Like he's an untraceable, mm-hmm. unfindable, un, you know, all of these things, agent of chaos. I was like, ooh, that's better. That's better. I dig that. That was cool. Like I just, and like to me, that is a better, you know, description of him than a manifestation of destiny. And it's not that he's an agent of chaos of you just never know what he's going to do. You may know what he's going to do, but you just can't stop him because there will be the one element you didn't think of that he did that all of a sudden, you know, he has to solve it. It's to me, like I said, it's the second scheme. It's the scheme under the scheme that he does that is chaotic. If you're, if you're on the other end of it, it is chaotic, you know, cause like one of my favorite things is uh end of rogue nation when he's sitting there and you know, Benji's got that bomb tap strapped to him. Rebecca Ferguson's character's there and they're all sitting there and he rolls up and he's like, I've memorized all these accounts. They have never established in any of these movies that he has the intelligence and memory to just commit an entire database of bank accounts with dollar amounts to his head. But he does. And I'm just like, and I, I love that about him. Every movie introduces just a new skill that he has. You know, apparently, you know, Fallout also Fallout introduces the fact that he can just learn to drive any vehicle ever. He can just get in a helicopter and figure it the fuck out real quick. I love it. I, it's one of those things that those are the ridiculous elements of these movies. But it's also the fun thing of it because they do kind of reset him between movies. You know what I mean? 
they're not having him go, oh, I can fly a helicopter this movie and the next movie he's flying helicopters all the time. No, they reset him. He's not flying any helicopters, you know, and that's what I think he, I dig about it. It's like whatever skill he learned, he pushes out of his brain to learn the new skill for the next movie. Uh, yeah, that's I re- true. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Um, with all that being said, I think my favorite scene in this movie, though, has to be that airport scene, though. I really dug that airport scene. I, I love the way they utilize tension. I really love the way that, like, you know, they had their main mission and then there was that side mission that Benji had to go on and Luther is talking to both of them the whole time and you get that added tension that Ethan doesn't know about and then all of a sudden he finds out about it and he's like, what the fuck are you doing? A nuclear bomb, you tell me about nuclear bomb. You know, like like all that stuff. I was like, I really dug all that. And then you have the weird shit of, the Gabriel character being there and then disappearing and all this other stuff. Cause the tech glitches a little bit. And you know, then you have this machine fucking algorithm learning about Benji whilst making them think a nuclear bomb is there. But then you also get to see how fucking, how much Benji's involved, uh, evolved over the movies, you know, and all these other things. I just really dug that. And I loved, I loved the plan with it too of, just through security cameras, they were digitally altering people to look like him. Oh, that was such a cool fucking that was plan. Cool. That was cool. Oh, that was such a cool fucking plan. And I loved the reveal of it, too. When they walk up to that guy and they spin him around, he's like, what the fuck are you doing? And they're like, and they're like, you've got him. And they're like, no, this isn't him. And they're like, no, you have him. I see it on the camera. That's him. And they're like, it's not fucking him. And then the camera fixes and they go, oh, it's not. It's not him at all. Oh, I dug that. That was such a cool fucking scene. And then they go back to all the sleight of hand shit, which is once again a reference back to the first movie. Ethan Hunt being able to do that sleight of hand shit. It's a reference yeah. to the the knockless disc from the first movie. And that scene, oh, and it's one of my favorite scenes in that movie though too. When he's sitting there with Jean Renault and he's like, uh, bam, oh, this is it. No, it's there. No, it's got and like all this stuff. Do you think I really gave you the list and all that shit? And he throws it away. And there was, then he walks up and grabs the knock list out of the trash can. And Luther's like, he fucking had it the whole time. And he's like, don't tell him that. Oh, that was a great scene. And I just really loved that this franchise has been keeping an, an understated national treasure that is Ving Rhames relevant. Like, yeah. how... How do casting agents around the world watch these movies and not go, fuck, we should hire Ving Rhames. He's fucking great. And these movies showcase it every fucking time. And somehow this man ain't getting more work. And I'll never understand that. But man, Tom Cruise goes, Ving, I don't give a fuck about everybody else. I will single-handedly keep your career alive like it should be. Yep. And I dig it. And once again, watching all these movies back-to-back seals it even more. And then once again, and it's why I gave it the score I did, because that's one of the other things I noticed. When you watch all these movies back-to-back, Luther only shops at Tommy Bahama. He (laughs) somehow gets espionage clothes made at Tommy Bahama. This man is in fucking 
like, you know, 60 year old man on the beach hats and shirts. Like he looks like a guy that just retired and moved to fucking Fort Lauderdale. But somehow he is a spy while he does it. And I dig it. And, and, and summarizing everything with this, all this though, that Gabriel is a very nice villain. Mm-hmm. I was really wondering where they were going to go as far as the villain goes. Because you're coming off a villain, the first villain you've had that repeated movies. You're coming off yeah. that guy who is just a son of a bitch of a villain. So good. I really dig this one. Yeah. I'm glad agree. they did. I'm glad he didn't die. I'm glad he's getting multiple movies. Cause he was fun. He was a great villain. I liked how he was kind of the anti Ethan hunt, which I know is what they've, they've tried to do a couple of times. You know, they tried to have Henry Cavill be that. And it's not quite the same. Uh, Oh, especially, especially mission impossible Two. Oh my God. Was that guy meant to be, just dark yeah. Ethan Hunt. Right down to they yep. both wore the same jackets and same motorcycles type of shit. Like, but this one actually feels like it because it's like they feel equally matched physically. It's just mentally they are the exact opposite. You know, yeah, Ethan, I didn't think about that. That's true. Because, you know, they bring up multiple times that like Ethan Hunt is unique in the fact that he'll, he'll care about the one so that the other people don't have to. Yeah. He cares about the billions, but he'll also care about the one. And then you have Gabriel that cares about the one to the degree of, he doesn't care if it's 3 billion people or one person suffering. He wants that. If, if he can't make 3 billion people suffer, one will suffice. It's in, in, in that, that regard, he's the anti-Ethan Hunt. Where Ethan cares about those people, Gabriel wants to see that yeah. burn. And I love that about him. Like, And that's also the thing, too. Other villains were obsessed with Ethan Hunt. You get the idea that Gabriel actually doesn't care about Ethan. Mm, like true. that. You know, he doesn't care about Ethan. If if he makes Ethan suffer, that's cool. But his mission isn't to make Ethan suffer. And I dig that aspect of it. He's not focused on Ethan. He's focused on his mission. Yeah. And that's a really cool thing with this. I really like that that, that dichotomy it adds to this. Because we've seen variations on these other villains and all this other stuff. And so it's nice to see that change, but it's also a very smart change. It's a very unique change. It's something that this franchise knew it needed and did. So once again, kudos to these fuckers for doing it. You know, it's also an interesting thing about Gabriel is um, <laughs> the most that we see of Carrie Elwes's character is with him. Carrie Elwes is a charming 
delightful individual that is overshadowed by Gabriel. And that's a hard thing to accomplish, I think. (laughs) So kudos to him for that as well. Oh, you just love Despero. Um, Yeah, I do love Despero, but Carrie Elvis in general, he's just a very, I don't know. He's got something about him that you're just like, anytime you see him, you're just like, whatever you're doing is great for the most part. I disagree with you, Heather. I I did not like when he had to cut off his own foot. That made me sad. <laughs> that's what the, for the most part, <laughs> that's what that was prefacing. So, yeah. <laughs> and if you don't know what I'm referencing with that, I don't know. Go watch a fucking movie. Dear God. <laughs> How could you be the one person on the world that did not see fucking Saw? Um, Heather, keep going, though. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's hard to... Th- think of a lot of things on this that I just didn't like because I think everything they did really pretty much worked. My biggest problem with this film really is just the fact that they got uh, that they killed off uh, Ilsa because I also loved her character. I thought she was great. I thought she was a great um, addition to their team and just in general as a character she's great. So I'm I'm also very bummed out that she was killed um, that's probably my biggest actual problem with this movie is the fact that they killed her off. Um, because yeah, like if they didn't and they still brought Haley Atwell's character on to be a part of the team, I think that that dynamic also would have worked, you know, to just have both of them still in the next movie and whatever. But, um, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next movie, but yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm really sad to see the end of her character. But I mean, I just, I really, I, I loved, I, I loved the airport scene as well, but I also loved the parts of the airport scene where, uh, yeah, Haley Atwell and Tom Cruise's characters are like kind of doing their kind of flirting, but kind of challenging each other thing that they were doing. And that whole like chemistry that they have in that, that scene was so well done on top of the other stuff of, oh, the face swapping thing. Like they think this is who it is and it's not. And just everything about that airport scene was so good. Um, I also think that Mission Impossible has a lot of really great like openers to their movies. This one, I think the thing that stuck out to me about the one for, for this movie is when you just see all of the guys like, frozen under the ice in the water that scene is kind of haunting in a like it it looks really cool but it's very haunting where you just see them floating up and then they're just stuck under the ice and it was it kind of sets the tone of you know the stakes of what is this what is this movie going to be about and you know what is this for so i i think they did a great job of that they always set it up well but I feel like the the tone of the opener in this one was felt a little bit different because of that haunting aspect of just these men that you see are just drowning under the water. Um, but yeah, I guess, I mean, I do think that, um, I don't know. I, I feel like maybe... Maybe the uh, the only thing I will say about the Haley Atwell character with Tom Cruise or Ethan is 
I feel like his like affection towards her happened so quickly. <laughs> and this is being nitpicky because I get it, but um, you know, just the whole, when they give him that choice of which one are you going to let die and things like that? Like it just felt like he grew this affection for her so quickly to where it felt like at times she was on the same level for him emotionally as Ilsa was. Um, and so that whole thing was kind of, that was probably something I would maybe have done differently, but I don't know how they would have because that was the stakes, you know, they needed some kind of stakes and that's what it was for him. Um, and I will, and I, I am glad that you brought this up Sterling about, you know, uh, Ethan, just, he cares about the one because you see that a lot kind of throughout this movie as well where for example the the lady cop who got shot and um you know as she got shot he he was kind of like over there comforting her and saying like oh i'm really sorry about this like the sincerity that he has with the people in the film is really i really really liked it and i don't know that i really noticed it before until watching this one and how he's just like he's got some kind of earnestness about him in, in certain situations that I really appreciate about his character. Um, and you see it again with, uh, with Palm Clementiov's character with Paris, um, when she's about to die and he's sitting there and he's like, I need information, but you can tell that he's like, Oh, I don't want you to die. You know, you just, you feel like this earnestness and sincerity that he has about him with, uh, you know, the people that you might not expect it to be for, especially because so many of them are usually against him. So I, I liked that they did that with him. And just going back a little bit to Paris, I, I'm always really, well, for the most part, I'm a fan of like a silent villain. <laughs> I think it can be really cool if done in the right situation. And they did do that here because Paris was a great character. She did not say much at all, but I just really liked her presence on the screen. And I, I liked just her her just fearlessness that she seemed to exude anytime you saw her, even, even in her death, even when she's about to die, like she just seems so very fearless. And I don't know, she's got like this fierce thing about her character that I really liked. And the moment that you do see her speak and the emotional moment that you get from her, I think was paid off really well. Like she, it was a great moment of acting, but also that scene kind of pushed forward a little bit, the story going from there, even though it was towards the end, but yeah. And then um, I think who was her name? Vanessa Kirby. Um, I'm forgetting her name in the movie. The, the she blonde is the white widow, white, white widow. widow. Yeah. Also a callback to one, even though she shows up in fallout, she is Max's daughter from one. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, they brought her back for this one and that was fine. But I just feel like if there was a character, I would say was probably the least important in this movie. It would probably be hers of like the major players in this movie, because I just feel like they didn't really they utilized her for just like a. All right, let's we need her so that we can do the the mask and, you know, get the information we need. But with her character being who she was, I just feel like they didn't really utilize her a whole lot 
So if there was anybody, I would probably say, you know, you could take out of the movie if you wanted a shorter movie. It would probably be more of her stuff. <laughs> but she's a good character. It's just I, I wasn't always sure what they were wanting to do with her, I guess. But um, but yeah, I, I think that the you you feel the stakes and you feel the the urgency of what's happening here and that that train thing like at the end when those cars are falling off the edge that was intense like i feel like the entire time during that scene i'm just like is this gonna stop can these cars stop falling i'm very worried right now for ethan <laughs> like just was, it was so intense and so stressful and it's like you obviously know that he's not going to die but you just like the way that they filmed that everything about that was really well done because I'm just like I am nervous it's like I know the end game here with this but I'm still nervous about this scene because it's so intense and they do that so well in these movies like even the um I mean you know the motorcycle dive into whatever like that was awesome and it's like you know he's gonna he's gonna stick that landing you know he's gonna do it but you're just like oh my goodness what's gonna happen there's so much you know roughness below him that could kill him and it's that's it's just so well done where you're like you know he's gonna make it but they make it interesting enough with how they created this movie that you're still just like what's going to happen, you know? And I, I love that these movies always do that. They always keep you on your toes and it's just really impressive that they can continue to do that and not be same old, same old with these movies. Um, also, it's really easy to forget that this is based off of a TV show. <laughs> like I actually forgot that for a minute because I mean, just the tone and everything about it is so different. I mean, that was made in what the seventies, I guess. A really 60s, cheesy 70s? ass TV show, too. Oh yeah, yeah, that. for sure. Yeah, yeah. So it's just funny to think about how this is based off of that and just how different they are. Like I forgot it for a minute, and then I was like, oh yeah, that's right. It, it was based off of this TV show, um, but they made it its own thing. They completely made it its own thing, its own world and universe. And they do it so much better. And um, I just, I honestly can't imagine any of these movies without Tom Cruise in them. <laughs> like the way he does the Ethan Hunt character and everything he brings to these films honestly is a big part of what makes them as good as they are. Like say what you will about that man, but he is an action star for sure. Uh, there's just no doubt about that. And um yeah, I I just I don't know. I feel like um I I agree with you, Jason, that I'm not worried about the next one being bad in any sort of way. I think it I just it's interesting with these movies because you feel like how can you actually get better or like how can you reach this level of good every movie after 4? It's like how can you how can you get better than this? And so it's almost like every time they do a new entry, there's always that hesitation from me of like, should they, shouldn't, should they just end on the high note and not try to do more because it ended so well the last time. But every time that they do a new movie, I'm like, okay, you're doing the exact same thing. You're keeping that standard. And yeah, so I'm not worried that the next movie is going to 
just be less for any reason because they're just so thoughtful with all of the stories they tell in these movies. So yeah, I mean, I also, um, I liked the moment of return for, um, who's the other lady that, uh, was his ex-wife. I forget her name, but, um, Michelle Monaghan. Yes. I, I, I couldn't remember her name in the, in the movie. She's not in this movie. Is she not? Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. I saw the fallout right before this one, and that's the one I was thinking of. <laughs> Never mind. Um, see, so they enough, all kind of like, run together. I was trying to think. I was like, fuck, was she in this movie? Uh, that's uh, the problem of watching them so close together. Like, you just, sometimes they, they kind of run, run together. together. Yeah, my bad. But um, anyways, either way, I did like her in the last movie. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I think um, if they do continue with more of Haley Atwell, which it seems like they will based on how this movie ended. I mean, I do think she will be a good addition to the team. I'm just wondering kind of like what you said, Sterling, like, is she a full replacement for, um, Ilsa? Like, is she supposed to be the same type of character or are they going to just kind of play it differently? Like, I don't know. I, I'm I'm just I'm really interested to know what they're gonna actually do with her going forward. Um I don't know. It's it is really I'm fifty fifty on it, but it is because of the same thing of don't get rid of Ilsa. Why'd you have to do it? <laughs> but yeah, it's um it's really yeah, I, I'm excited for what they do next, but I'm why did they I'm curious up front, why did they decide to do this as a two-parter. Did they say? No. They're just, okay. Because, I mean, it's not even like a, yeah, just the fact that they already up front are like, oh, part one, part two. So um, I guess maybe because this is continuing the same story, like the other ones are all sort of different stories, even yeah, though it's, except you know. five continued into six. The end of four continues into five. I guess They mentioned true, the syndicate huh? at the end of four. So then you have the syndicate in five and then you have the repeat villain and it's just, yeah. you know, the ramifications of taking down the syndicate led to the apostles, mm-hmm. you know, they've really serialized them since four. I guess know. that is true. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I'm curious. And like, maybe it really was just more of a ploy of, we want you to want to watch the next ones we do too. So just remember, this is only a first part. Like who knows like why they're doing that that way. But um, yeah, all in all, I just, it's, it's definitely, I don't know. I feel like it's interchangeable with ghost protocol and, uh, fallout. Like, I think these three are probably the best of these movies, but honestly, rogue nations good too. Like it's really hard because they're all so top notch. Um, yeah, I don't know. I I'm just glad that it was still a on par entry for this franchise. Um, yeah. Justin, what about you? Yeah. So to talk about that car scene really quickly, I think that for me, um, that comedic tone that they added to it, that decision to do that for me makes that car scene very innovative. 
it wasn't just the fact that they were handcuffed to each other, even though that piece of it was great too. And the fact that they're in this little ass vehicle and, and they're having this chase or whatever in, in like this cute little car and all of this crazy stuff is happening. But I think the decision to lean on the comedic side of that makes it such an innovative standout car scene. Like in other car chases like that, there are comedic parts, but it feels like it's the same beats all the time. You know, we cut inside the car and somebody is yelling hysterically or, you know, it's, you know, where we hit a part with stairs and the car is bumping and the guy inside is like, uh, uh, uh. you know, normally the, the, the comedic beats in those car chases are so cliche at this point, they could have their own genre. It's like, you know, Oh, we're, we're going to go inside the car and show hilarity ensuing and all of this kind of stuff. But I think like them going, no, we're going to put them in this little ass car. And we're going to change the situation up, up a bit instead of just a passenger or, or like th- that, that cliche of there being a passenger and the passengers just yelling about everything as the person is trying to drive like that is so played out. And their decision to say, we're going to handcuff them together. We're going to put them in this little car and we're just going to have all this hilarity with them trying to control, just simply control the car on top of being chased and on top of the stressful situation of that. I loved it. To me, that is one of the most innovative car chase scenes because of those decisions, like the balls to say, we're not going to do it the same way you see it all the time. We're going to try to do something a little funnier, a little lighter, but at the same time, it's going to have those action set pieces to it as well. And I think that that's why, like, I love this franchise so much. Just the, 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 the passion and the willingness to push themselves to painstakingly, it seems at this point, think outside the box and just go, why do we have to do everything that, that, that another movie does? Let's try something different and just having the bravery to do that. So yeah, that, that, is definitely, I think, just one of the more commendable scenes in this. And you guys talked about the airport scene, and yeah, I I totally agree with you both. That was a great scene because it did so many different things well with the how um, Benji was having to disarm that bomb, the the, the communication that, um, that Luther was having with both him and Ethan. And then Ethan... And with another with another woman in this and the whole back and forth with him and grace and all of that stuff. And and also the situation of the bad guys getting closer and looking for them and trying to find them. And so you get that espionage M.I. stuff with the kind of Ethan and grace stuff. And then you've got the 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 Benji Luther stuff over here. And it was like just. All of those, all the things you love, you've loved about M.I. over the years was all kind of in that scene. They just sprinkled in different things from all of those things we like. And it just came together great. So, yeah, I totally agree. I, I, that was another scene that I really loved. 
Um, and I like the idea of this adversary, like Gabriel was great. And I like this idea of this entity. I, I like the idea of them sort of fighting with something that is utilizing all these different algorithms and trying to predict what they're going to do in a sort of by any means necessary. I, I, I see all these scenarios and all I am trying to do is get the perfect scenario to get my end result. So that I think, and then Gabriel being an agent of that and then going out and everything is about like you kind of talked about Sterling. I don't care about the lives. It's all a means to an end. Just what did we calculate in order to get the best result and him being sort of this anti Ethan in a way that, you know, this, the entity comes up with all of these scenarios and things And then Gabriel has to do the impossible mission of making sure that these scenarios play out. And that is kind of the anti-Ethan with how he is sort of always trying to find the best result for all of the lives or save as many lives as he can in the scenario. So there really is an anti uh, uh, Ethan in almost this perfect way. Like you've got this person trying to, you know, um, perform or in, in, in a way sort of make these scenarios play out that the entity is coming up with. And it feels like Ethan is like totally on the opposite of that. We have this terrible, horrible, chaotic situation and he is trying to, make something good happen from all of that. He is trying to have get the best result possible to save the amount of lives, to bring order back, whatever the case may be. So I like the, the, the antithesis that Gabriel was in that. And, and it's funny because whenever I heard the monologue of Kittredge about the agent of chaos, for me, what that means is Ethan is somebody who thrives in chaos. He's not an agent of chaos that like, like he creates it, but that man thrives in chaotic situations. He is like somebody. It seems like the more chaotic it is, the more amazing he becomes. He always seems go ahead. Just with that, it's, it's kind of in a way of the best Ethan is Ethan in chaos. Exactly. Like if you were to bring out that peak Ethan Hunt, you put him in chaos and that's where his skills will become unmatched because you might be doing all this stuff and trying to control it, but creating chaos for him, but you will never put him so far like out of his depth to where he can't overcome it because all you're doing is unlocking peak Ethan. Exactly. Exactly. He is at the peak of his powers when shit seems to be going awry and that character always seems to do that almost to the point of like, it's almost like he is an entity when it comes to being in a chaotic situation, because sometimes it's funny because like he'll do something and then the character will be like, how did you know that that would work? And he's like, 
man, I didn't, I forget what movie it was, but it was that movie. Oh, I'm sorry. The first movie. Uh, what am I talking about? The, the first movie where they're trapped in the water under the, the van or whatever. And then he sends uh, the body out there with the flare and then they start shooting at the body and then him and that other guy get away. And later the guy was asking him, how did you know that that would work? And it's crazy because I'm going all the way back to the first movie, but that's how consistent that's this is. That's Ghost Oh, is Protocol. that the fourth movie? Yes. Oh, that's Ghost that's, Protocol. That's him and Damn, Jeremy I'm Rainer. getting mixed up too. <laughs> that's him and that's Jeremy right. Rainer. That's right. It's him and Jeremy yes. Rainer. That's right. I don't know why I thought it's it was the first movie. It's easy to do My that, bad. isn't it? I guess that's the Midas of watching all these together. My bad. But right. yes, him and Jeremy Renner. Yes. Uh, yeah. When he's asking him, how did you know that would work, man? And then he's like, man, I didn't, bro. I just <laughs> gave them something to shoot, man. I just came up with that in the moment. But and even though that's kind of played for laughs and that's kind of a funny scene. And, you know, Jeremy's character sitting there going, uh, you know, WTF. But the thing about it is that is Ethan. That is the power of this man. He thrives in chaos. And it just seems like whether it's we're stuck in between a mountain and we're two helicopters crashed at each other and we're falling and I'm trying to get the, the, the detonator from Henry Cavill. Or it's this movie where these train cars are just falling you know, off of a cliff. And we've got to traverse each of these cars safely. But I'm not, but I can't just worry about me. I've got another person that I am, <laughs> that I am worried about and try to take care of who has never been in a situation like this at all. And just his ability to be like, and you can just tell he thrives in this, like, like they're, they're hanging on this one car vertically. And he's like, okay, I'm going to need you to jump. Like you've got to jump right now. You've got to jump right now. Or and like trying we're to dead. keep her calm like, too. Yeah. It's yeah. Crazy. And it's like, he won't allow himself to be like, jump, jump, bitch. You know what I'm saying? He's because like, right. maybe You're a normal be right. person, yeah, exactly. maybe a normal <laughs> person would be like that. But Ethan thrives, but that's what I love about him. He thrives in chaos and stuff like that. So he knows in that moment is, you know, he's already calculated that yelling would not be the best thing here. You know, he's already calculated that I got to seem he could be having his heart could be pounding a million miles a second right now. But but in his but he know, but he has already calculated that. I need to be calm. I need to be at this tone because it, because she may not make it if I sound like anything else. And I truly believe that's the kind of stuff that goes on in his head. He will be in a, for lack of a better term, impossible situation. And much like an entity who's thinking of all these scenarios, he's constantly thinking. I, I think that's how his mind works. I'm just convinced through all yeah. these movies, that's how his mind works. He just I mean, he's a never great leader. feels. Yeah. Oh, I go mean, ahead, Sterling. And with it, I, I like how there is also an element of luck to everything he does. And yeah. I, I like that the movies lean into it. 
he's not impervious or he's not 100% perfect. He's also extremely lucky. So let's say you believe in kind of a cosmic chaos, if you will. It's almost like it roots for him because of how fucking lucky he is anyway. But I love how they lean into that. The movies acknowledge it at a certain point. I want to say they started in four. They started to acknowledge that he's lucky. I think it starts with that scene with Jeremy Rayner when he's like, well, how did you know that would work? And he's like, oh, so you just got lucky. And he's like, well, they're not agents. They're just guys with guns. I gave them something to shoot at. What else do you want? Like, there is an element of luck to what he does. And I think that that is kind of one of the great things about it because when they lean into it right, it kind of just makes it a little more fun. Like he jumps off the, the the fucking hill on the motorcycle and he does all that shit. And now that's not the lucky part, but the lucky part is that he crashes into the train right into the guy that was about to shoot Haley Atwell's character. Yeah. Yeah. So like there's the luck part of that. Scene, yeah, that's true. You know, and, but they lean into that a little bit and I really kind of dig that because that's what I think adds to the tension and the chaos that it, it kind of feels like Tom Cruise with him, him doing the stunts in all these movies. You kind of feel like, is there going to be one day that your luck runs out? Right. Because it gives you that same feeling because you have that feeling with Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise wants to die and he wants you to watch it happen <laughs> in a film. Pretty much. I'm essentially convinced of that based on like rewatching all these movies and seeing all the crazy shit this man has done. I'm like, he wants to die. He the just man wants has to make lived sure life for sure. Yeah. He, he just, he wants, he wants it to be filmed. He wants his legacy to be that his character died in a movie when he died in real life and you got to see it happen. I swear. That's what he wants. It totally just hasn't happened that. yet. Yep. Cause this man, just does not stop doing this shit. I mean, they've already kind of shown a little bit of one of the things he's going to be doing in Mission Impossible 8. And that's him being strapped to the top of a fucking like World War One bi-wing plane. Like, and he's on top of it while it's flying around. And that also could just be promotional shit. I, there's, I, I'm trying to figure out where the fuck the context is going to be for a Mission Impossible movie using a bi-wing fucking airplane. But... That's the shit this fucking man does. I mean, he fucking now in in real life, it was a ramp at the top of a hill. It wasn't, you know, they CGI the peak of that. But this man really did fucking ramp off a fucking mountaintop and parachute off of it. He really did do that. Like it's fucking bonkers what this man does to himself just for the sake of our entertainment. If you don't know, like some more other trivia with this stuff, Tom Cruise actually was flying one of the fucking helicopters in Mission Impossible 6. It wasn't one of the situations where it was like a dummy thing and someone else was flying it, but they just make it look like he was. No, that man was flying a fucking helicopter. That man also was climbing up a rope to a helicopter and then fell off the helicopter to like catch himself. Now, granted, yes. There's a harness like there's a there, you know, they removed the safety stuff in post, but still that man is like fucking falling 30 feet from a helicopter. That's like 400 feet up in the air. Like it's fucking crazy what this man does. This man did a fucking halo jump and grabbed a guy 
all that fucking happened. He did it. Yeah. You know, this man, I swear to God, has a fucking death wish. But like I said, and that's why I think it adds to the character of Ethan, because Ethan has the same death wish. Right. That's just the part of, of Ethan Hunt that is Tom Cruise. Is that they both have that weird death wish. They just don't die. <laughs> yep. So it's Ethan Hunt playing Tom Cruise, not the other way around, <laughs> basically. basically. At this point, um, it's, it's, it's both. He is one both the Ethan Hunt and Tom Cruise at this point. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I, I like what you said about luck. But what's that quote? Luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like the, the, there's something to be said about a person who keeps themselves, despite age, keeps themselves in this kind of condition to be able to do these things and then believes that they're going to win. The, there's just something about that. The, there's just something about him seeing that idea, writing that idea, seeing that idea on paper, reading that in a script or reading or coming up with this himself or who, however they conceptualize this stuff, whatever the methodology is behind that. But there's something to be said about him reading that, seeing that, or thinking, visualizing what the big stunt is going to be and going, I can do it. You know, the, the, there's just something about that man. The, there's just something about his ability to say, I can do the stunt, you know, before it happens, before they get in any helicopters, before they are doing any jump or anything like that. How easy would it be able to say, no, nah, I think we're going to need somebody else to make this jump or no, nah, I think we're going to need somebody else to hang on this plane. I mean, he has all the way up until just before it happens to say, eh, I don't think I'm going to do this one. But there's something about preparing and then so, being like, I'm going to do it. Well, it's funny when you were talking about like at his age and, and, and being in that condition to do all this stuff. He in this movie was Four years younger than Harrison Ford when he did Crystal Skull. Man. And just think about the difference in the action performances of those two movies. Yep. Yeah. Well, and it was just like we said, like, whenever we sort of questioned how enthused Harrison Ford was about playing... Yeah. Indiana Jones and everything like that. But this man, this is like Tom Cruise's baby, man. Like this well, is and they wanted shit. to get rid of him. They, That's crazy. They brought in Jeremy Rayner to ultimately take over for him. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Huh. That was the year that Jeremy Rayner was supposed to take over two franchises and never did. Because he was also supposed to take over the yeah. Bourne franchise and never happened. You know, I feel very bad for that man. He was supposed to be that it guy that just never came to be. Um, Which is sad because he's such a good actor. Like, yeah, I loved him in the Mission Impossible movie he was in. 
Yeah. Well, he because he's in four and five. He's in Ghost Protocol and Oh, Rogue it is Nation. two of them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. See, I'm telling you, they all get joined together. But yeah, Not he's so <laughs> he's so great in these. And I think actually, if I'm being honest, I think the Mission Impossible movies were my introduction to Jeremy Renner. So I was Mine like was the Hurt Locker. Oh, really? See, and I haven't seen that, yeah, that but was like, mine. but yeah, like he. I was just like, man, he's he's just really good. Like he's solid. So yeah, and so it's unfortunate that that keeps happening to him because it's not like he's not talented enough to do them. So I'm just I don't know how that. Maybe he's got yeah. the bad luck. He's the anti Ethan in that way, I guess. But he the problem is is he's not Tom Cruise. Like this that's true. the problem. Yeah, you know. And they also wanted to introduce him to maybe have him take over the role in the one where he, Tom Cruise officially loses his mind and hangs off the world's tallest building in the middle of fucking Dubai. I'm like, you don't give Tom Cruise that stunt and think he's giving shit up. Right. Yeah. That's fair. Like, come on, get, get, get real. Um, yeah. But with all the, that, like the, the, and one of the things with it is Tom Cruise says, that he wants to make Mission Impossible movies till he's 80. And with the way he does things, I'm like, hey, that's if you don't kill yourself in one of these movies beforehand. But also, I weirdly feel like at 80, the quality won't dip that much. <laughs> I know, right? Like, this man's still going to be running faster than I could ever think about running. I know. And in every movie, there's a Tom Cruise run scene. There's a C. Tom run scene. That's that's contractual. That is. I was about to say it's got to be because it is every single one of the movies. There's a C. Tom run, and oh, I'm but here look for at it. his other ones. Look you at his other ones. Though. He he runs so much in the Mummy. He runs so much in the Mummy. <laughs> he runs yep. so much in a lot of movies. He runs a lot in Edge of Tomorrow. Um, Did he run just, in Maverick? I can't remember if he ran in Maverick. I'm sure he did. Yeah. He's got to run at least once. Like, even if it's just him jogging on the beach or something, he's got to run at least once because that man loves to be filmed running. And don't he's <laughs> he's got, and I think it's partially because he's got a weirdly great running form. Yeah, he does. That's true. I was about to say, it's very distinct. Like, if you yeah. lined up silhouettes of people and you were like, who is this running? I could I could recognize his run. Oh, I could yeah. recognize him. Yeah. I don't know if I would recognize anybody else's, but I would recognize him. I would go, oh, yeah, that's, that's Tom running right there. <laughs> and that's the big thing with it, Heather. You could not pick out Jeremy Rayner running for anybody. That's you could fair. pick out Tom yeah. Cruise running. That's true. Yep. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's right. It was my turn, right? Um but but I think the only thing I wanted to say uh, to add to all of that stuff was just no nah, I think we made the point on all of that where was I going with all of that I think that's that's fine I'll move on um and I, and I guess the last point I was making was just about wanted to make was about the end uh I think the reason why or I feel that the reason why I liked it is just because like you typically every cliffhanger decides to go the route of the characters in peril. I mean, that that's just kind of the, 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 the typical route that we go. It seems like 
with cliffhangers. And I'm not saying that that sucks or that you can't do that effectively. I mean, Across the Spider-Verse did do that effectively with the hero in peril. But that's the cliffhanger we get all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's always they're in peril. You know, Infinity War, everybody disappears. And it's like, oh, what's going to happen? And, and or it's, you know, in the fast in the fast movie, it's, oh, we're in peril. We're about to be killed. What's going to happen? Um, and, and like I said, I'm not saying that you can't do that effectively. But again, the. The balls to make a different decision and to say, we're not going to do it the same way as everybody else. We're not going to end with us with the train car falling and Tom Cruise and Grace hanging and we go to the credits and and the key is slipping from somebody's hand and we're going to the credits. I like the balls of going, nope, we get to the end of this. We're out of the train. And guess what? Gabriel doesn't have the key because mm-hmm. they could have because they could have went and been like, well, we got out of the train. But damn, Gabe, Gabriel has the key, man. Where is Gabe going? But I kind of like the balls to go. Nope, we're out of the train. See, Gabe doesn't have the key either. <sighs> and so what is going to happen when we go to this? But we know where we have to go. We have to go to this submarine. And I like the idea of saying that this next movie is not going to be about the chase for the key. You've already seen the chase for the key. So we're going to, so we, we, we got, you know, our MI team has the key. So this shit is about to be about something else. And I like it, man. I like the balls to make a different decision. You know, I, I appreciate the bravery of that to just not do it the same way that we see all the time. And that's I'm sort of what I Justin. meant in my. I, I'm torn. I'm kind of, I'm almost the exact opposite of you though. I wish Gabriel had the key. I wish Gabriel had the key, but I wish that like, you know, they find out at the end from Paris where the sub is, you know what I mean? So I kind of wish that Gabriel had the key, but they know where the sub is also just to give them some urgency though. I to be like, you know, so you're going into the next movie with them having to go now, right now. You know what I mean? Like that element of it, I wish they had a little bit. And I think that's why I wish Gabriel at least had the key. Okay. Okay. I think I want to see what they do because I think the the reasoning behind that is is that they don't want you to feel like the next movie is going to be about a chase for the key Uh, because we've already seen that movie. That's this one. So I kind of like the idea of saying the right people got the key. So that's not what this shit is going to be about. You know, it's not going to be about this thing that we chased for this movie. I like the idea of, me knowing that this is going to be about something else, because I think if that character has the key, then you got, if Gabe has it, you got to get it from him still. And that's what this movie was. I feel like, you know, we got to get the key from said individuals. You know, it was, we got to get 
the the two pieces together and now we got them together. Now we got to get the key from these guys who have it. I feel like you're playing the same beat if you go into the next movie that way. I feel like it's better for it to be something else, whatever that something is. But who knows? Like you guys were saying about having to watch this last movie um, to see if the 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 Elsa Frost Faust death is valid in your eyes. I think maybe this is the same way too. If we don't get a better idea, then maybe I'll come back and go, you know what, Sterling, maybe you were right. Maybe we should have did some more key shit. But I'm hoping there is something bigger and better and something more thrilling that we are going to do, you know, than chase the MacGuffin. Yeah, I think it's partially because I'm trying to, like, rationalize why this is a part one, like Heather brought up earlier. Like, it just being a sequel, like, continuing the story, that can just be two separate movies still. And I think with how cleanly this movie ends, I'm trying to figure out why it's just considered part one. You know, because to me, it feels like the movie ended, and then you're just getting the next part in the next sequel. You know what I mean? I'm trying to justify why this is considered part one and part two. And I think by having, and that's why I wanted some urgency between them because that solidifies it more than I think what will end up feeling just like a sequel, you know, and it, and it really is. It's not to justify this story or the next story or whatever. It's solely to justify the title of the movie being part one. I think that that's why in my yeah. head, I'm wanting something a little different because I'm like, but why is it part one? has nothing to do with the story of this movie or even the story of the next movie because they'll probably do the story just like they were planning to do and all this other shit and I'll probably be fucking fine with it. I'm just trying to figure out why the fuck it's part one. That's all like to me. Yeah, I'm like, same. just why is it part one? So it just wasn't enough for you that we haven't found the sub yet. The entity is not out of algorithms or possibilities or things. And we have not destroyed the entity yet. So it wasn't enough for you no. that the entity was still alive and no. that we still got to figure out what this whole thing is or does. That wasn't enough. You needed no. like then something it's just more Mission stressful Impossible. to be happening. Well, because to me, then it's just Mission Impossible 8. It's kind of like how at the end of Back to the Future, Doc comes back and goes, Marty, your kids, we have to go to the future. And then it's just the next movie. You know what I mean? I'm like, it's to me, it's the same thing. It's like, it's just, even though these story elements weren't finished, you're just doing the next movie. You know, like I'm just narratively in my head trying to figure out how it's a part one and a part two when it also is just Mission Impossible seven and eight. I'm just trying to rationalize that in my head. That's solely why I wanted something, like I said, a little bit different at the end was because of that. Because, like, this movie ends and I'm just like, yeah, that's the story of Mission Impossible 7. The next one's now Mission Impossible 8, not Mission Impossible 7 Part 2. Like, that's just weirdly in my head where it is with it. And, yeah, and like I said, if they didn't call this Dead Reckoning Part 1, I don't think I would have had, like, then my head would not have even thought of it like that. 
You know, hmm. like it wouldn't have even been something that crossed my mind. So that's why I'm right. weirdly stuck on that. And it's, and I don't, and I, I realize how ridiculous it is because it's just the title of the movie. That's it. It's just the title. It really doesn't change anything about the movies or the story or the next one or anything like that. It's just the title. But in my head, it means that there needs to be something else. And that fucks me up mentally. You don't think, though, that on some level, though, somebody else, if it didn't have the title of part one, somebody else couldn't have looked at it and been like, well, it should have been a part one. They didn't. They haven't solved the problem. The problem continues. You know, the entity still lives. They got to find this submarine. They got to go here. Um, They got to go do the thing. They got the thing. But now we got to see what the thing does to try to destroy the big thing. So you don't think that somebody would be sitting there going, well, why isn't this named part one? Because we didn't really resolve the issue. And but the whole reason why I don't feel like that'd be an issue is because of Infinity War and Endgame. Hmm. Yeah, they they did two different names. True. They didn't do Infinity War Part 1 and then Infinity War Part 2. Yeah, and that's True, considered Avengers 3 and 4. Yeah. You know? That, that's why. And I, that's why I don't think the in-general public would have really cared about that. And to be fair, the in general public is also probably not hung up like I am right now either. <laughs> this gotcha. might be a very unique sterling problem. And I'll accept that. <laughs> it's just where my head goes with it, though. But no, um, I think that's it for me, man. I just wanted to say that uh, there was nothing. Y'all. We pretty much talked about a lot of other different stuff. So now I think I'm good on that note. Do you have anything else, Heather? One quick thing is I forgot to mention the the two guys that are going around chasing Ethan. Um, I don't remember their names, but um, <laughs> the the I like the part in the movie where they have the conversation and the one guy says, you know, what if there's a reason that Ethan is always, you know, going rogue or going, you know, off by himself and doing his own thing? Like maybe he had a reason for doing that every time he did it. And I really like that they had that scene and brought that up because I'm like, yeah, like finally somebody's actually trying to think about like, why does he keep doing that? Or at, at least questioning it, not just going with the norm of, all right, we just got to follow the orders and whatever. So I, I appreciate that they put that scene in there because it kind of gave a little bit of dynamic to those characters, but also seeing like somebody who is essentially from what I could tell was newer, um, just being like, I mean, if that's what he's always doing, like maybe we should be questioning it, you know, in, in the way of, you know, maybe he's right for doing what he was doing is what it sounded like he was saying. So I just thought that was a cool part that they put in there and I appreciated it. Well, with that, one of the thing I think that's funny that they didn't bring up in that is like, you know, well, maybe there's a reason why he goes rogue all the time. And it's also got to be a good enough reason that they still fucking keep him after he goes rogue and saves the day. True. So obviously yeah. the government goes, nah, you were right too. So obviously they've, they, they trust his judgment other times. Yeah. You yeah. know, 
And that, like, even though he goes rogue, they go, never mind, you were right, Ethan. Like, you know, I like, I thought it was funny that they didn't bring that up, though, that, like, he's gone rogue all these yeah, times. Because <laughs> that one guy's like, yeah, he goes rogue all the time. And it's like, yeah, but in the end, the government's like, yeah, you were right. It's okay. We forgive you for going rogue this time again, again, after he's done it 97,000 times. I think the one yep. movie he doesn't go rogue is fucking Mission Impossible 2. That is weirdly the one time he doesn't go rogue and he's on mission the whole time. <laughs> but I think it's one of those things. I think the younger guy is going to join his team. I think that's going to happen. You think so? Yeah. I would be fine with that because, I mean, I liked his character. Yeah, I actually liked both of their characters, the both of those guys. But yeah, um, that was something I liked. I liked the fact that it wasn't like some hit squad that the government sent after him the whole time, like in other movies or whatever. I liked that it was just some other guys. Yeah. I really kind of dug that aspect of it. And th- yeah. they were obviously competent at their job because they were fucking everywhere. Everywhere yeah. Ethan was, they were there too every fucking time. I kind of yeah. dug that because I'm like, oh, they're not just incompetent people. They're they're competent. They're just not Ethan Hunt. Right. No, yeah. And yeah. you could just see the hesitation on the one guy every time he had him and he was like was at gunpoint with him and whatever. He he just would never he would never follow through with it. And I thought that that was interesting to be like, it's like he doesn't want to be doing that. He doesn't want to shoot Ethan. He doesn't want to kill Ethan. He doesn't want to do any of that. And you could just tell by just the very vague way that they just do his character in this movie. And I, I liked that they did that. Uh, one other thing I'll bring up real quick, going back to what we were talking about, how like Gabriel and Ethan being the antithesis of each other. I also really dig the fact that, they're the only two that don't want to control the entity. But then they also still have the exact opposite motivations. One wants the entity to live and one wants the entity to die. Yeah, that's good. But I I dig the fact that they are still the only two. I mean, yeah, Ethan and his team, but like they're the only two that don't want to control it. Like, yeah. So it adds to the fact that they are of the same mind, but the two hot, like two sides of the same coin type of thing. Um, so other real quick Tom Cruise stuff. So when it comes to this SAG strike um, during negotiations, big name actors very rarely get involved in the actual negotiations. Um, Tom Cruise did. Tom Cruise actually went on behalf of SAG to talk to the heads of studios, his main two points that he focused on, because they kind of do that when they're kind of like slightly like experts in the field. Um, the two things Tom Cruise went to the studios about on behalf of SAG was the provisions in the, what they're wanting for um, better pay for stunt, better pay and better safety for stunt actors. While Tom Cruise doesn't use a lot of stunt actors, he understands the importance of them because Nine times out of ten, he's working with stunt people on a lot of the shit he does. Even if he's not, even when he's the one doing the stunt, stunt coordinators are the ones doing it. Uh, the other actors are typically replaced by stunt guys. You know all that shit. You know, so Tom Cruise works with a lot of stunt people, and he was like, "Hey, like, yeah, you need to increase the safety standards and all this stuff for stunt people." You know, we had somebody die on a fucking movie this year. 
you know, and movies are getting bigger and crazier. We need to, you know, watch stunt shit. And so Tom Cruise talked about that. And he also talked about one of the big things we talked about last week of the use of, uh, of CGI to replace an AI to replace actors and backgrounds and stuff. And he's like, come on, no, we can't do that either. That gets rid of why we want to make movies. So I'm like, fuck yeah, Tom Cruise. Now the one thing that he spoke to SAG about, and I do agree with him on this is that if SAG does get to the point to where they do a boycott where they're like, Hey, stop going to the theaters. You know, we need the studios to hurt. He did caution SAG with that about when they do that because theaters are very much fragile still after COVID. The theater industry has not bounced back yet from COVID and doing a strike could destroy theaters. You could have a lot of theaters go under because of that. And I mean, Justin should really understand that, you know, because what one half of your theaters in your fucking town is going to be closed as of tomorrow. Yep. Yep. Read the, the theater over here is closing. The theater that me and Justin met at that we worked at all this other shit is fucking yeah. closing after a couple of decades of being open. And that's half the theaters in that fucking town. Yep. Well, okay. That's no, half one third because I technically you still have the drive in, right? I mean, uh, yeah, that's true. That kind of. I forgot. I yeah. almost forgot about that. But yeah, yeah, true. But yeah, you're losing a fucking theater. And like I said, that's half the fucking theaters in your town, essentially, going away. And that's after one of them closed in Odessa, too. Mm-hmm. Theaters are fucking closing. And if they do not, if they do not handle it as a last-ditch effort, you could also cause theaters to close which ultimately it doesn't like if theater chains start to close down and more theaters leave and all this other stuff, you better hope you have a damn good contract with streaming revenues because you're not going to have shit for fucking box offices. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. (laughs) And so that was kind of Tom's point with that. It wasn't, Hey, don't do it. It's like, we have to be cautious with it though, because we can't have theater chains closing too because of this. Because then what are we doing if theater, if movies aren't going to theaters at all anymore? What are right. we doing? Because, you know, Tom's all about theaters. He told us right before this movie. So, yep. <laughs> and I, I appreciate that. I don't think that's completely lost, you know, especially right after I found that out. Literally the day I found that out that afternoon, I found out that Regal was closing. I'm like, holy shit. Is that relevant then? That that's not something that's not unique to Midland. That's unique to the industry. Random mm. theaters are closing. Yep. So if we want theaters to be a thing, we better hope something happens. I mean, and this is like a slight PSA on my part, just for people out there. And I know I've said it before. When you go to movie theaters, for the love of God, I know it's expensive. And I know it's not just the tickets that are expensive. But you need to buy concessions. You need to buy concessions. Even if you're just getting a drink, get something from that fucking concession stand because that's actually what theater chains make their money off of. I think they make anywhere from 5 to 10% off box office sales. It's not much. You know, 
you know, you can have a hundred people in a fucking movie theater and they make 10 bucks off that, you know, you know, if you have like those older theaters, I think that said like 350 people, they make $35 for all that. And that's for all the staff, the lighting, the air conditioning, all that other shit that's in there, maintaining the sound equipment, buying projectors, all that shit is possible because of concessions. And that is why concessions are so expensive because that is the only way they make money. They don't make shit off the box office. It's off of concessions. That is the revenue stream for fucking movie theaters at all. And they, while they also don't pay the best, it's because they have shit fucking margins. So yeah, that's why there's such stupid markup on that shit. But that's why, like, I just implore people when you go to the theaters, at least get a drink, get some, buy, buy a stupid, expensive $5 bottle of water. Just buy something from the fucking concession stand because that's what keeps theaters open. So then that way, if we get to a boycott, if people had been buying concessions, maybe that'll still keep shit alive. You know, if they can make enough money off concessions now, Maybe they can deal with nobody going to the fucking movies for a month or two to get studios to quit being dicks. And we don't have theaters shutting down. So buy yeah. concessions, please. That's all I'm saying. You don't have to be like me, where I sometimes I'll get a fucking drink and a popcorn and a pretzel and mozzarella sticks and all this shit. And I spend like 60 to $70 on concessions for a fucking, for one two-hour movie. You don't have to do that. Like I said, buy a drink, buy a pickle, buy some nachos, just buy something. Because that's the only way we're going to have theaters, especially if studios don't get their heads out of their asses and this strike goes to a boycott. Anything else? Nope. No, sir. On that note. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Cinema Slayers Podcast. Check us out on the internet at www.cinemaslayers.com. Cinema Slayers Podcast on Facebook. Cinema underscore Slayers on Twitter, Instagram, and threads. At Cinema Slayers Podcast on TikTok. At Cinema Slayers Podcast on YouTube. Uh, give us a five-star rating review. We'd really appreciate it. Really help us out. Tell your family. Tell your friends. Tell your friends' family. Tell your family's friends. Most of all, tell those dear sweet mothers because dear sweet mothers love. Tom Cruise, of course. I would have also accepted Luther. Being Luther. Ranks. Yep. Luther as well. Uh, shout out to Plug Migo and Mundo Cho for our theme song and logos respectively. Just remember here at the Cinema Slayers podcast, we are both pro slut and pro Sydney. And Justin is ever so slightly tepid about Burger King. Come on. I'm a huge fan. Did you eat there in mm-hmm. the last week, Justin? No comment. Like I said, Heather, ever Heather so slightly there. tepid. Heather did Heather not eat there. there as a kid. <laughs> I'm just saying, ever so slightly tepid about Burger King. Um, and as I always in these podcasts, these TikToks and these YouTube videos, just remember, according to Justin, Moon Knight is the best picture winner. What's the over under on Tom Cruise or Gabriel eating a Burger King in the next game?
Zero. <laughs> Cinema Slayers. Do you think Tom Cruise would risk his life on eating a fucking Whopper? No. That might kill that man. And he has to do it on film. <laughs> That's a stunt he just can't do. <laughs> yeah. uh, Is that the impossible? Pretty much. Oh, oh that might be. Uh, see, why didn't Burger King do that? They could have done the Mission Impossible Whopper. They've already got the oh, yeah. Impossible Whopper. Why aren't they doing the Mission Impossible yeah. Whopper? That was a missed opportunity. That? God, they did Burger King it. fucking blows. They'll be better next year. <laughs> Chastin, they're worse off than theaters. They won't be open next year if they keep this up. <laughs> Come on, man. They'll be open. You just got to wait till next season, man. Next season. One in Juneau, right. Alaska. It'll be like the last <laughs> blockbuster. It'll be like the last Burger King. Um, Another little interesting tidbit of fact about the Mission Impossible franchise. Most of the people from the TV show hated the movie, the original movie. Really? Because, you know, the the guy that John Voight plays was actually a character from the first movie or from the TV show. And the fact that he turned and went bad and all this other shit, they fucking hated it. Oh, man. They're like, it's a disgrace and all this other shit. And now look at it. People don't even remember you're a fucking thing because of this mm-hmm. man. Yeah. Shut up, old Crazy. people. Crazy. Crazy. All right, I'm out. Don't forget to hold.